Francis Joseph Lefty O'Doul was born in San Francisco in 1897. He was born right where they eventually put Candlestick Park in what at that time was called Butchertown. He came up as a pitcher, was not too successful as a pitcher in the big leagues. Later, he switched to the outfield and became one of the game's greatest hitters. He led the National League in batting in 1929 with a 398 batting average. And his lifetime batting average of 349 is the fourth highest in the entire history of baseball. He had a bistro on Geary and Powell, right downtown San Francisco. Everybody in San Francisco knew Lefty O'Doul. He knew everybody. He was, well, he was the town. He became Mr. San Francisco. He ran that restaurant for many years. He was DiMaggio's closest friend. Mr. and Mrs. O'Doul were the best man and best lady at the marriage of Joe DiMaggio and Marilyn Monroe. And he was also, I should mention, Lefty O'Doul was the U.S. ambassador in terms of baseball to Japan. The reason the Tokyo Giants are the Tokyo Giants is because Lefty O'Doul was playing then in the New York Giants. He gave them their name. He started professional baseball in Japan. He was a, a revered figure in Japan, easily as revered as their greatest hero, Babe Ruth. When Lefty went to Japan, as he did many, many times, he couldn't walk down the street without people bowing to him, and he was a wonderful person. He, I interviewed Lefty in his restaurant. Waiters were rushing around, getting things set up for the noon meal. Despite it all, O'Doul just concentrated totally on what we were doing. He didn't seem to realize all this hubbub was going on around him. I hasten to add that we became close, close friends, and I made many trips subsequently to San Francisco and spent a lot of time with Lefty and Mrs. O'Doul. I would often go out there Christmas and Thanksgiving time. On Christmas Day and Thanksgiving Day, Lefty would shut the doors of the restaurant early in the morning. No one was allowed in except street people, people who lived from hand to mouth, people who were broke, addicted to this or that, people who were homeless people. And they were the only people allowed in Lefty O'Doul's restaurant on Christmas Day and on Thanksgiving Day. I was in there because I was a close friend. Everybody got a wonderful meal, and everybody got presents. Even me, they gave me a present, <laughs> wrapped up in everything. This is for Larry Ritter. It says for everybody else. This was so-and-so, and everybody clapped. It was great. What did your father and mother think about you becoming a professional baseball player? Well, I, I forget what they thought. I guess they were, they didn't, they were elated they didn't. because I was, a, I was first working in a slaughterhouse. I didn't, I didn't graduate from grammar school even. They took me out of grammar school and put me to work in the slaughterhouse. I educated myself a little bit so I could converse with people and met a lot of people. And these fellows squawking now about, about conditions and playing night and playing the next day. I used to play Sunday morning in Stockton, get an egg sandwich and go and put the wet uniform on, play in Sacramento in the afternoon. Ride 60, 70 miles on a bus. I used to play in Oakland on a Sunday morning come over on the ferry boat and get a bean sandwich and carry my own uniform and play in Recreation Park in San Francisco in the afternoon, put the wet uniform on. That was semi-pro? No, that was professional baseball. No kidding. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, Pacific Coast League. Oh, damn. Yeah. I was playing in Des Moines, Iowa, and you get on a train, 
and you carry your bats in your own bag, your own uniform, roll it up and carry a uniform, get on a train with the old wicker seats, and they were burning coal, and you get in the car in July and August and go from Des Moines to Wichita, Kansas, all night, part of the next day, and if you opened up the window, you'd, uh, you'd, you'd be eating soot and cinders all night, and if you closed the window, you'd, you'd roast to death. See? So when you get off that train in the morning, if you had the windows open, well, you'd all, you'd all look like you had a mad black mask on. But if you closed the window, you couldn't sleep all night. And these fellows are squawking today and traveling in jets and air-conditioned airplanes and air-conditioned rooms. I played in St. Louis where you, you'd sleep with a sheet on, you'd be sleeping in a puddle of water. Mm. You get up and play ball the next day. It's certainly a lot softer now than it was. How can they give these fellows sight unseen without knowing what's inside their body, what kind of a heart they have, what kind of intestinal fortitude they have? You give them $100,000 to sign a contract. It's a lot of money. I can't understand it there. I would imagine that the Bank of America here would go down to the University of Stanford, get the honor student down there and give them a couple hundred thousand dollars and say, someday you're going to be one of the big shots in the bank. Same idea. They wouldn't dare do that, would they? Yeah. And after you make good, why, well, I think those are the fellows that should get the dough. I don't think they should give it to some fellows unproven. Yeah. And they throw so much money away. And I, I led the National League in hitting in 1929 and hit 398 and had 254 hits, broke the record, and I got a $500 raise in Philadelphia and had to play 10 or 12 uh, exhibition games to get our salaries. If, if, if a ball club plays one exhibition game a year, why they're moaning like something happened to them. What'd you and, get then? About twenty thousand? Oh, are you kidding? I was lucky to get eight. No kidding. In nineteen hundred and thirty two I lived in Brooklyn Ball Club in the National League and hitting with three sixty eight and they cut me a thousand dollars. Okay. See, I was just born thirty years too soon, it was depression. No kidding. I'm telling you the truth. Wow. And uh, I, I can remember I love to play. Jesus, when I was playing ball in the big league, the, my bats were jumping in the in, in the trunk. Couldn't wait till I get to the ballpark, you know? Grab that bat. And of course I was you know, hitting streak, and I, I can see when a fellow's in the slump why he hates to go near the ballpark. See, and I can imagine some of those fellows have been in the slump all their life, never could hit. I mean, I mean that must be drudgery for those fellows to go to the ballpark. But I mean, I couldn't wait till I get there. When you were batting, could you see the ball hit the bat? Well, I try to watch it as long as I could. See, I think it's impossible. You watch it, you watch it, and try to see it. If I put my hand like that, you can't even see my hand, so how am I going to see the bat hit the ball? So this is a blur, see? Yeah. I mean, I move my finger. Uh, you, I'm sure that you couldn't see an object hit that thing, no. right? I can see the spin of the ball. You know, I could tell when the ball is halfway up, there's going to be a curve or you could. You ball, could see. spitball, absolutely, or knuckleball. You can see the ball revolving. See, the ball is revolving. You can see the way it's revolving. I could. Only yeah. missed that 400 by two points. Yeah, I hit closer to 400 than anybody ever hit. It didn't do it. Didn't do it. <laughs> yeah. There's only eight fellows in the history of baseball ever hit 400. I have the highest batting average of any man living. The rest of the guys are dead. It was an unwritten law when I first started to play baseball if a batsman hit 3-0 and at any time. The next time he came up there, boy, he was knocked down four consecutive times. And they screaming out about the bean ball. If they forget about it, they'd be better off. And an umpire going out to tell a pitcher, finding him $50 because you threw it a man. Why, my God, they got an iron helmet on their head, haven't they? Yeah. If I was pitching today, I'd see if I could skip them off their head. You didn't wear helmets those days? No, I wore a felt hat. And I saw many a ball right in my noggin. How they can get it in there, it's, it's, it's beyond me. 
How'd they get back up? Well, some good men hit? got hit in the head, you Who? know. Mickey Cochran. Mickey Cochran. So what? Carl Mays. So what? Carl Mays was I mean, a chaplain. Uh, one I mean, man, one chaplain. man was killed in professional baseball. Yeah. How many's killed in boxing and football? Lots. Huh? Lots. Many and many, right? Yeah. And then they're screaming about it. It's getting thrown at. It's part of the game. I told you when I first pitched, I knocked my finger off, didn't you? Yeah. I came back and pitched in 1921 here, and I had 15, either 15 or 19 batsmen. Hit them. Trying to hit them. You understand? Yeah. It was my bread and butter. How many think I missed? <laughs> you know? Never hit anything in the head. Hit them in the ribs. They broke my... And then later on, the shoe was on the other foot. So they broke my elbow. They broke a rib. They hit me in the stomach with the ball. Hit me in the shoulders. Hit me in the legs. And a, and a ball player will fight himself out of it. See? Drag the ball. Try to spike the pitcher. Ball player himself will fight out of it. Why the owners and why the general managers howling? And the managers, they don't have to go up there and hit, do they? Huh. What are they screaming about? See? And you see what they're doing? They're scaring all the ball players in baseball, probably, about this bean ball and umpire warning going out and warning these pitches. How does he know that the ball could have slipped, couldn't it? It's only a human being. It's not a lathe. It's not a piece of machinery. It's a human being. And the ball, you could have perspiration on his fingers or something. The ball could slip and hit a man or, throw, or go behind him. I've seen a lot of fellas throw a ball hit, hit 10 feet in front of the plate. Sure. And I've seen a lot of them throw the ball hit the screen. What about the batter when he hits the line drive and hits the pitcher in the head? Ain't nothing said about this. Which happens, Don? Well, sure it happens. The, the score got hit right in the noggin, didn't he? And Bill Pierce got hit right in the head. I saw him get hit in the head. More pitches get hit in the head than batsmen. Yeah. I don't know how a pitcher gets out of the way of some of those. Well, yeah. Right. But they can hit those line drives back and the pitcher's not supposed to protect himself. Yeah. They come back As I said, the shoe was on the other foot and they knocked me down many a time. It got so bad they used to say, well, here you go, Frank. And I used to be ready to duck and there it was. And every time they come up there, you're going to go down a couple of times in a ball game. And Hornsby managing the Cubs. The New York team used to, used to give the signs from the bench. And he'd give the signs from the bench to the pitcher. And if the catcher come down with the wrong side, the pitcher would shake his head. And we, we watched Hornsby give the signs to the pitcher. We knew what was coming. And we'd give the knockdown sign. He'd put his head back like this, shake his head back. That meant you were going to get knocked down. We knew we were going to get knocked down before the catcher knew we were going to get knocked down. Okay? <laughs> They threw every pitch they throw today and more. I used to use licorice and make the ball as black as your hat and how they hit it, I'll never know. Just imagine Ty Cobb hitting the emery ball, the spit ball, the coffee ball, the mud ball, What's the, coffee the paraffin ball? ball. They used to put coffee, chew coffee and put it in the seams. <laughs> see? And then they put paraffin, psychotic paraffin and shine it and make that ball skip. Imagine Cobb hitting 367 lifetime for more than 20 years. So you're hitting 400 several times. Yeah. So you imagine him hitting. See? Like a fellow said to me, one of these kids said to me, uh, Cobb was about, well, when I told the story, like I'm telling you, Cobb was in about 70 years old, see? One of the players said to me, he said, what do you think he would hit today with this lively ball, see? And uh, I said, well, he'd hit as much as May's, 345, 346, something like that. And the kid said to me, well, why do you say he was such a great hitter? that he could only hit with this lively ball, this white ball, only 345. I said, well, you got to take into consideration the man is now 70 years old. <laughs> See? So, uh, Kai Cobb with this ball would probably hit 600. <laughs> in the same position, I did a spit ball, an emerald ball, a mud ball, a garden ball. And sometimes they play with the same ball for three ball games. Yeah, they didn't throw it out. Yeah, throw it out. They just go in the stands, hit the stands, throw it back in the ball game. People public never kept the ball. Yeah, they threw it right out back in the ballpark. That's only been since Babe Ruth, you know.
keeping the ball. They always threw the ball back in the ballpark. He played with Ruth on the Yankees yeah, in the yeah. 20s. I was there when he came. He was a wonderful fellow. He did more for baseball than baseball could ever do for him. He's the fellow that made the high salaries for them. He's the fellow that brought them in the ballpark. And why they didn't name it Ruth Stadium, I'll never know. No. Because he certainly built it. And why they didn't name the I was with the I was with the Yankees in the, in the, when they played in the polo grounds. When I joined them in 1919, and they used to play to five or 600 people. And uh, as you know, the Giants was a big team at that time when McGraw had them. And Ruth came over there, and, he, and the people started coming. It wasn't when the Yankees went on the road. It wasn't, did the Yankees win? How many homers did Babe Ruth get? He was in the minds of, the, of every baseball fan in America at all times. And he was a good-natured fellow. He was very nice to the other players on the ball club and other players in baseball. Everybody, all the ball players loved him. He never had a high hat. He never did. He was always playing with the fellows and always taking the ice to go to Coney Island with him, riding his automobile to Philadelphia and around. You played for Huggins and McGraw both. I played for Huggins and McGraw. What was the difference between McGraw and Huggins as a manager? Oh, Huggins was a very timid little fellow, and McGraw was a... He was a wrong line and wonderful guy to me, wonderful, wonderful man. I have a lot of respect for him. He was a great man. Was it fun to play for him? Sure was. Was it fun to play with that, no matter what manager you had, or did some managers make it so it wasn't so much fun? You see, some managers, when you're going good, why they'll say hello to you, take you to breakfast in the morning. When you're going bad, they don't talk to you. When you're going good, you don't need the manager to slap you on the back. It's when you're going bad, you need the manager to slap you on the back and take you to breakfast. Yeah. You never played for Hornsby as a manager, did no, you? No, I never did. Thank God. Yeah. Well, that was a different type of man, evidently. Absolutely. If he, he didn't smoke, so he didn't want anybody else to smoke. He'd get up at 6 o'clock in the morning. Everybody's supposed to get up at 6 in the morning. He didn't read a newspaper in the, in the clubhouse. No, he's supposed to read a newspaper in the clubhouse. Well, I don't think that's fair to you. No, it's so But he liked to sit around the lobby and wink at girls. <laughs> like that. Yeah. <laughs> and he was a great player. The greatest. Greatest right-handed ever lived. But he never, except for one year, he never really could make it as a manager. A lot of people. Ty Cobb had a tough time being a manager. Because he thought everybody should do it just like he. It was so simple to him. It's like me hitting is simple. It was simple. Just go up there. I could see the ball look like a balloon coming up there. And I was agile. I was fast with the bat. And I had uh, quick reflexes, good eyes. And I wasn't afraid of the ball. And it was simple. But it's not that easy. And so I think it's how you want. I said, why can't you hit? Did you manage to manage when you were at? Yeah, I managed him his last year. I'll tell you how great he was. I managed the San Francisco Baseball Club my first year managing in 1935, and he had 397 for me in on the pennant. I got six players and $25,000 for the manager, and the, the next year, eight clubs in the league, I finished seventh without him. Huh. And the Yankees, they got him, and they went on to win pennants with him. Yeah. Just shows you what one man means to a ball club, especially the Maggio. Yeah. If you haven't got the horses, you, you haven't got a chance. So that's the story of my life.